Good morning, church. Um, as always, it's a joy to gather with you. Um, as the covenant people of God, um, we spent some time this week as staff and elders just hanging out and reflecting on God's goodness and his evidences of grace through the life of this church family. Um, and, and really, truly, it is a blessing, uh, undeserved blessing from the Father to be able to be a part of this gathered community of people. As you heard read a moment ago, we're continuing in our series through the Gospel of John, John's account of the good news of Jesus. And today, we're starting in chapter 7. Um, we're going to be in this gospel a few more weeks, and then we're going to take about a, well, a six-week break, um, and we're going to spend some, times in the book of, some time in the book of Psalm, Psalms. And so we're going to spend about six weeks there, so that'll be exciting kind of through the summer. It'll be called Summer in the Psalms, some clever title we stole from somewhere else. So you can be looking forward to that series coming up in a few weeks. But as I said, today we are in the gospel of John. It's been a great series so far. Uh, today we're in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. If you want to go ahead and find that in your copy of the scriptures or on your phone, or we'll also have the verses displayed on the screen for you if you want to follow along that way. If you're looking for the Gospel of John, it's in the New Testament, uh, the fourth book of the New Testament, right behind Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So our passage today, you just heard it read, it ends with a word that is often misunderstood and many times completely rejected in our culture, which is the word judgment. So Jesus uses the word here, and contrary to popular opinion about Jesus, he actually tells the people he's talking to that they should judge. But he tells them that they need to judge according to righteous judgment. So this tells us that there is a right way to judge and a wrong way to judge. Now, most of us, when we hear the word judge in the context of a Bible setting, the verse that comes to mind, I, I feel like most often, is from the Sermon on the Mount. It's something we hear quoted from both believers and non-believers alike, judge not so that you won't be judged. And so when we associate that type of judgment with that context, we, we think of arrogant, self-righteous, hypocritical judgment. And that's actually pretty you know, accurate to the context of that passage. That's what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount, that we shouldn't stand in arrogance and self-righteousness and judge others. But what Jesus wasn't saying is that we should never use judgment as we follow him. He's not saying that anytime someone speaks truth to you or disagrees with you and your choices or holds you accountable, especially when they have relationship with you as the covenant people of God, He's not saying that that is the type of judgment that they should not be doing. This is why it's important as we go to the text to look at context. What is going on? What is the surrounding verses? And context matters. Because in the context of our passage today, the word judge, this idea of judgment, simply means a discerning posture. Making an evaluation about something or someone. And the reality is that all of us, even if we tell ourselves that we're people who don't judge, we do that every day. We make evaluations about people or situation or things. I know there's some of you in here that love to leave reviews on Google, right? Or Yelp or whatever it is you use. You put a one star or a five star or somewhere in between. And when you're doing that, you are making a judgment call about that company or organization saying, I think they are valued at a one star or a five star. And we'll even all base our decisions on what company we used on kind of the sum total of other people's judgments or evaluations. 
right? As we're working on this building, one of the things we're having to do is get, you know, different people, electricians, plumbers, and I, I try to get personal recommendations, right? Because I trust someone else's judgment, right? We hear that used. And so if I know them and trust them, I'll go that route. But if not, we just go to Google and look at the sum total of reviews, kind of weed out the, you know, super negative ones, because that's probably an outlier, and the super positive ones, because that's probably an outlier, and take the sum total and say, hey, here's a few options we can use to work with. And then as we get quotes, we make our own judgment calls about the experience we had, and we make a judgment call. Now, at the same time, the thing we need to understand is, so that's not a bad thing, that type of judgment and evaluation. But at the same time, we have to understand that no human is capable of perfect judgment, that we all come with our lens and our bias. We all have a level of subjectivity that none of us can ever fully remove, even though we all think we've arrived at our judgment calls very objectively. You know, we just looked at the facts and made the call. That's what we like to think. But we all bring our own bias to the table. And now sometimes our experience can actually help us to make better judgments. If you've had experience as an electrician, you could probably make a much better judgment on the work of an electrician than I could. No, I know you could. Not probably. You could make a much better judgment on that. But other times, our experience can taint our lens and cause us to judge poorly. So like anything else that is a good gift from God, the, the mind and the ability to discern and judge, the ability of humans to judge has been tainted by the fall. And so because of that, we don't always judge rightly. And often we misuse and abuse our ability to evaluate and discern, and that's exactly what we're going to see in our passage today. We're going to see groups of people who make unrighteous judgments and evaluations about Jesus. And unfortunately, because of this, they absolutely miss Jesus and the point of his message in the process. So let's dive in together to our story. Let's start by looking at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 7, John 7, 1 and 2. After this, so sometime after what we saw last week, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of shelters was near. So in our story this week, we're going to see Jesus, and we're going to see this in a minute, head to Jerusalem for the last time. He's still got about six months left to live, but he's nearing the end of his life, and he knows this. The rest of his life will be spent primarily in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. Our story this week take, takes place about six months after the events we've looked at the last few weeks, the bread of life, the feeding of the 5,000. It's about six months after that. We know that happened around Passover. And John gives us this marker called the Festival of Shelters, which took place in the fall. So Passover was around Easter when we celebrate that stuff, Good Friday. This is during the fall season. This festival lasted about eight days. It would start on a Sabbath and end on a Sabbath. And this was a time when the Jewish people would often during that whole week live in these booths, these uh, handmade shelters to remind them of God's presence and provision when they were wandering in the wilderness and when they didn't have a home. This was what the point of this festival was. We'll see that later in future, in, later in chapter seven, why that matters. But right now, John's just given us this marker to say, hey, some time has passed. And during this whole six months, Jesus has just been hanging out in Galilee because he knew if he went to Jerusalem, which is where the, primarily where the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders hung out. If he went there, they were trying to kill him. And so he's just hanging out in Galilee. His time to die is not yet here. But with this festival, this is a time where people, not just from Jerusalem, but from all around, the Jewish people came together to celebrate this festival of shelter. So there's going to be pressure for him to go as well. 
as a Jewish man. So look at verses three to five. It says, so his brothers said to him, so his brothers come to him and they're going to go. He says, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples can see your works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So it's recorded in another gospel account that, John had, that Jesus had four brothers, all of which seemed not to believe him until after the resurrection. So right now, they don't believe him, and so they're ragging him a little bit. Like, I can't read these words without a little bit of snark and sarcasm, maybe because, that's, uh, because I'm a snarky person. But honestly, for it to make sense, like, they're like, Jesus, like, you think you're some big bad person, right? You think you're the Messiah. Um, why don't you, why are you hanging out here in little old Galilee? Why don't you go to Jerusalem where it's really at and go show yourself to the world? Start this kingdom you've been talking about. Stand up as king and do it, right? It reminds me a little bit of Joseph's brothers when Joseph talked about his dreams and they were like, okay, dreamer, right? And you, you almost can't blame Jesus' brothers. Like, I worry about my kids, like, living in the shadow of my older siblings, you know, their older siblings. But imagine being Jesus' younger brother, right? Like, that's, I mean, already, like, miraculous birth. And then when you get to this point, like, everybody's talking about him. He's kind of got this celebrity status. He's probably like LeBron. Some people love him. Some people hate him, right? Um, I, I, I go back and forth between that. But like, you know, Jesus is this polarizing figure. Everybody's at least talking about him, right? Even if they don't like him, he's being talked about, and his brothers have to live in this shadow. And they're like, like we, we saw Jesus like when he was a kid, the, the Messiah. What are we talking about, right? And so this is what's going on here. They probably got annoyed by Jesus a lot. And so they make these judgments or these evaluations about Jesus. They look at it and make this judgment that they don't believe that he is who he says he is. But in response to them, just like when his mother was telling him to turn water into wine, he makes it clear that he is not bound to the whims of humanity. That even though his brothers tell him to go to Jerusalem, he's like, guys, like, I'm not on your timetable. I'm bound to a different calling, to that of the one that my father, my heavenly father, has given me. And so he responds very similar to the way he did his mother um, back then in chapter 2. Look at verse 6 of chapter 7. It says, Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. You can do whatever you want. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said these things, he stayed in Galilee. So essentially he's saying, look, you want to go to the festival? Like, go ahead. Like, you can go whenever you want. Your time, you can go now. You can go next week. I don't care. You don't have to worry about the world hating you and killing you, but I do. So I can't just go unless my father says, go, right? I've said the world was evil. I've testified about it. I've not just said that, like I've made a true and righteous judgment about the world that it's evil. So I can't go, but you go ahead. I'm going to stay back for now. Now here he says he's not going to Jerusalem, as the CSB says. Um, some translators believe that the word not, he is not yet going to Jerusalem, is, was in the originals. And that's how it should be translated. That's how the King James translates it. But either way, the word is implied. He's saying, I'm not, Jesus isn't just lying here. He's saying, look, I'm not going when you're going, right? He knows that his time, which when he says his time, he means going to the cross and being 
sacrifice for the sins of the world. He says, I know that's fast approaching, but it's not yet. And if he were to go at the very beginning of the festival, most likely, along with his brothers, because they would all be like, hey, Jesus is here, there could have been the triumphal entry happen here, and it wasn't supposed to happen for another six months when he started Holy Week and headed to his path to the cross. But the main point here is that Jesus operates not on man's timetable, but on God's. Remember, he's not from here. He's from God, and he's going back to God. He's bound to a set of different operating procedures than we are. And you can judge him all he wants. You can make judgment calls about him, but he's going to move forward at his father's bidding, not the whims of other humans. He's not trying to just please man. So the story continues. And in verse 10, we're told that his brothers go on ahead. And then later, Jesus follows, but he follows in secret. So he came after the festival had started. There would have been plenty enough crowds for Jesus to kind of hide and hang out at this point. And this could have been a supernatural thing. We don't know. But Jesus is secretly there. And as he's there, John records the smattering of judgments about him that Jesus hears. So we saw the judgments from his brothers on Jesus. Now we're seeing the crowd evaluating and judging him. Look at verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the festival and saying, where is he? And there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowds. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. Still, nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. So people are wondering where Jesus is at. He's made waves in the Jewish community and everybody, like anybody, again, polarizing. We've all got our opinions and we've got to share them. If we had Facebook back then. They'd all be going to post about Jesus and how either great they thought he was, how horrible they thought he was. We see the spectrum of responses here. Some say, well, he's a good man. Some say, no, he's like actively deceiving the people. That's a pretty big accusation. And most likely you have people everywhere in between. John's recording the two extremes. And all this is happening in secret. They're murmuring and complaining. You know how the gossip works, right? It's happening in secret because if they say it too publicly then they know that Jesus, they know that they would gain the ire of religious leaders. That's who John's referring to here when he says the Jews. This was a common way to refer to the Jewish leaders. So halfway through our text, we've seen Jesus be judged by the religious leaders who want him dead. We've seen him judged by the crowd who have a variety of responses and by his own brothers who simply just don't believe that he is who he says he is. And all of these judgments about Jesus is setting up this conversation that he's about to have with the religious leaders while the crowd observes. And so about halfway through the festival, a little bit after halfway through the festival, in verse 14, we're told that Jesus stands up in the temple and he kind of publicly starts talking. So he's not in hiding anymore. This was common for rabbis to get up and talk about, and you'd have different sectors of the temple. It was a huge place where rabbis would give little talks, right? We don't know what he taught. We do know that he taught with authority and with the knowledge of the scriptures, so much to the point that people look on at him and they know that Jesus has no formal rabbinic training. They know that he didn't sit under another rabbi and learn the intricacies of the Torah and the different interpretations of the day that were running around at that time. But still he interacted with the text in a way that caused awe among his hearers. That's what they say in verse 15. They were amazed and they said, how is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? Even though many of these people don't believe in him, they still can't help but admit that there's something different 
about this man. They don't understand how someone can be so well-versed without having sat under an earthly teacher. But they had missed everything he had said multiple times at this point, that his teaching was not from man, it was from God. It reminds me of Acts, when there were people who observed the boldness of Peter and John. And they knew that they were uneducated and untrained men, but they responded in amazement, and the text says that they knew they had been with Jesus. They had seen this before. Maybe some of these same people were here when Jesus was in the temple, and they said, that looks familiar. See, when we surrender to the power of God, formal training or education is not what's required to make a powerful impact. So in verse 16, Jesus responds to their amazement. And in summary, he says, look, even though you guys think I haven't been trained, I actually have, but the teaching is from God. That's who my trainer is, not an earthly teacher. I've I've told you guys that before. And he, he tells them, if you're truly after God's will, if you're seeking to know him, not just kind of follow some rules and see some signs and follow the show, if you're truly seeking after the will of God, The Spirit will make alive what I'm saying, and it will click for you. See, here Jesus is exposing their heart and motivations. He's not just content with judging outward appearances. that They were following the law. They looked like they had it all together. He says, no, if you're really after God, if your heart is correct and has the right posture, then you'll get what I'm saying. And he goes on to say that his motivations are pure. He says, the one whose teaching is from God, he has no unrighteousness in him. He's talking about himself. And then look at verse 19. He starts getting super direct. He says, didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? I'm trying to think how those religious leaders who had been attempting to kill Jesus thought he didn't know, right? They're keeping it hush hush. Why are you trying to kill me? right? He says this utterly offensive. He calls them out on their need to kill him. And he says, guys, you don't keep the law. Moses gave you the law. They gave you the Torah. Clearly, we've all read, thou shalt not kill, right? It's one of the commands of God that we still all agree on. It's probably a pretty bad thing most of the time, right? Don't murder people. And he's like, why are you worried about me keeping the law? Like, are you looking inward? Are you looking at your own heart? And here he seems to talk specifically to the religious leaders, though the crowd is still listening. Because in verse 20, we're told the crowd responds and says, you must be crazy. You've got a demon. No one's trying to kill you, right? And there were probably people in the crowd that were truly ignorant. Like, I knew this guy was crazy. Like, no one's trying to kill him. What are you talking about, right? And I'm sure the religious leaders like kind of hop on board with like a fake sense of shock. Like, what? Someone's trying to kill you? Oh my gosh, Jesus, we don't even know what you're talking about. You're crazy, right? You know, and egging up the crowd. But Jesus, I love this. He doesn't even really acknowledge their response. He just continues on. Look at verse 21. He says, I performed one work and you are all amazed, Jesus answered. This is why Moses has given you circumcision. Not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather judge according to righteous judgment. So he references back to the man that we saw in chapter 5, if you remember, that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. 
And at the time, they got super upset about it. They're still upset about it, claiming that he was, they were saying he was breaking the law of Moses. And so even these people would perform circumcision on the Sabbath by the law of Moses because that was keeping God's law. And he says, hey, you're upset about me. Like I was doing a much greater work than a physical circumcision. I was making a man entirely well, and you're upset at me? Now, the point here, don't get too hung up on Sabbath or circumcision, right? That'll be different sermons for a different time. The point is not actually about that. The point that our author wants us to see is Jesus is exposing their hypocrisy. He's been judged this whole time, and he's exposing the type of judging from them that he condemns in the Sermon on the Mount. These people only care about outward appearances. They've got a log in their eye, and they're worried about this supposed speck in Jesus' eye. They only care about outward appearances, maintaining the appearance of obedience to the law, ignoring the heart, the motivation, the spirit of the law, as it's called sometimes in Scripture. So he closes this whole talk by telling them to stop judging according to outward appearances, but instead judge according to righteous judgment. Make right evaluations about me and about yourself and where you're at, not according to your own bias and expectations, not to maintain a sense of power and control in this little little religious kingdom that you've fashioned, but instead judge based on my words and based on my character, based on who I am as the son of the living God. We're reminded of when the prophet Samuel chose David, the unlikely David, and he says, man looks on the outward appearances, but God, who Jesus is God, looks on the heart. And this is exactly what our text is doing and what Jesus is doing. He's getting to the heart of the matter. He's exposing our heart. He talks about the law and Moses, the one who wrote the Torah. This idea of righteous judgment. He talks about outward appearances. And he's showing us that the law, which he mentions a couple times here, exposes our hearts and shows that we all are in need of a savior. See, the law condemns us. Jesus makes it clear that he is in tune with God. And even though ironically, they're standing in judgment on him, that he's really the only one who can judge rightly, who can see past the outward show that they and we all put on and see what's going on in our heart. He's the only one who has no bias in him, as we're told in Psalms that he's the one with clean hands and a pure heart. He doesn't have any ulterior motives. He told us in verse 18 that there's no unrighteousness in him. And he's the only one this is true of. In verse 19, he says, no one keeps the law. And I love this, like in the gospel of John, we're getting this little prefigure to Paul's letter to the church at Rome. When Paul quotes Psalm 14, and he says in Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous not even one. See, for those who claim to follow the law and live by the law, they will also die by the law. The law was never, it was never the intention of the law given to mankind to try to save us, but it was given to show us the helplessness of our own situation and the reality that every single one of us No matter how good we think we are, no matter how good our Instagram looks or our Facebook profile looks, how much we put on the face, that all of us are enslaved to sin. 
and before God, when we're exposed, our heart is opened up, every single mouth is shut. Standing before him, there are no more human judgments to be had. No more excuses to be made. Every single one of us is guilty. And this truth about us all sinning, the fact that we're all guilty, I've even heard that truth misused to tell people, don't judge me. Who of you are perfect? Why are you judging me? That's not the point. The reality is that we're all guilty. And so this truth should cause us not to get defensive when our sin is exposed, but to get humble and honest when we are made aware of our sin. Now, I'm not saying that that can't be misused. And there is, again, a type of judgment that Jesus condemns. But this doesn't just mean that someone disagreed with me and exposed my sin according to the way of Jesus. See, no matter how good we think we've done, if we think that we can measure up based on our own works, our judgment about ourselves is faulty. We are not judging with right judgment. Paul says in Romans 3.19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut, and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment, to God's evaluation. For no one, this is what God has to say, no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. Because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. And if we stopped reading here, we'd all be in trouble. No one. We all stand condemned according to the law. But in God's grace, the law not only condemns us, but in his grace, it teaches us and exposes our need for a savior. See, the law can show us that we're dead, but the law can't bring life. We try to take the same thing that condemns us and think that it will help us and finally we'll measure up. But the reality is the law can't give you pure motives and a clean heart. We need not just some physical act like circumcision. We need what the prophets call a circumcision of the heart, a cutting off of the old flesh, the old stubborn heart that wants our own way and our own will and our own desires. We need that absolutely cut out and replaced with the heart of flesh that gives us pure motives and loves and desires to follow Jesus. The law can't give us that, but there is one who can. There is one who has no unrighteousness in him. We continue reading in Romans 3.21. Just think about these truths. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Jesus, attested by the law and the prophets, it was always the plan. The righteousness of God is not through the law, but it is through faith. In Jesus Christ, to all who simply believe, because there's no distinction. Your, your upbringing, your ethnicity, whatever it is, your good works, they don't distinguish you and give you an inside track to the kingdom of God. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace, not through the law, but through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
Jesus. Verse 26, God presented him, Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that God would both be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. God does not wink at sin, but he also, because of the work of Jesus, forgives sinners. Like, this is it. Like, Jesus atoning for sinners as the substitute. And today in our text, Jesus is hinting at what will be made plain when it is his time. When he heads toward the cross. When he is the sacrificial lamb that is presented on the mercy seat. Jesus, in his grace, doesn't just expose your sin. He also offers himself up as the cure, as the savior. And this sacrifice is the only way that God is both just and he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. This is good news for unrighteous, hypocritical sinners who when standing before the Father are rightly judged or evaluated to be evil and in need of a Savior. And the law is used to show us this and it condemns us, but Jesus brings life. The one who could have came judging came not to judge, but to save. He lived the perfect life on our behalf. He was the lamb without blemish, the one who had no unrighteousness in him. Every judgment about him that called him evil was wrong and false. And on the cross, Jesus willingly gives up his life and becomes sin for us. The thing that he hated, the thing that was there to destroy his creation, he becomes that for us and receives in his body the full wrath of the Father toward destructive sin. And he does this. He who became, he who knew no sin became sin so that for the purpose that we might become his righteousness. The great exchange. He died as the substitute, the atonement on our behalf. And in his resurrection, he, he gets back up and he shows that he has power over sin. Death can't hold him. He walks out of the grave alive and he accomplishes redemption for everyone who simply believes. That's the work. That's why John wrote this whole thing, so that you might believe and have life. It's why we do everything we do. The righteousness of Christ is imputed, made effective in our hearts through the gospel. We're justified on the basis of his work, and now we no longer stand underneath the condemnation of the law. We're free. We can shout. We can sing because we are set free from sin. And when presented before the Father, the only judgment on us, we received the judgment that was on the Son, the evaluation that there is no unrighteousness in him. You get that. Because of the work of Jesus, the Father looks at you and says, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. No blemish at all. Without this truth that we have to hold on to as the church, if we didn't have this truth, 
of this great exchange. There's no way to even rejoice in the fact that Jesus is dealing with all cosmic evil because without this truth, we are the cosmic evil. We're wrapped up in his judgment. This truth would only damn us. But in Christ now, we receive a new identity, not just some fresh start, not turning over a new leaf. That's not what Christianity is all about. It's not a tweak on the old system. It's not a tweak on your old self. It's a whole new creation. Our heart of flesh is cut off. It's ripped out. And in turn, we receive the circumcision of the heart. And we begin by his grace to live by the spirit of the law. We are no longer in bondage to our former ways, but instead we willingly, our heart actually wants to and desires to follow the way of Jesus, not perfectly on this side of the new creation, but exponentially and growing into his likeness and into his image. This is the good news. By his life, death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus makes those who believe entirely well. And it can be whenever he wants to. Almost cussed there. All right. When this happens, when we grasp what Jesus has done for us, this is the beauty of this. We become people who judge rightly. We discern that we are all guilty before God. We're not afraid of that judgment anymore because we know that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So we can walk in the Spirit, speaking truth to the world, not worried about their acceptance, but simultaneously extending 100% truth, but also 100% grace. See, the truth of our own unrighteousness apart from Jesus, we can't leave this truth. It humbles us. But the truth of our righteousness in Christ, our identity in him, gives us this radical confidence in Jesus because we've been radically accepted by him. We've been forgiven. And so as the people of God, as this truth takes root in our hearts, we are no longer led and tossed by the whims and judgments of the world around us. We are unmoved. We don't care about their judgment or their evaluation because we know that the evaluation that really matters is the one of the Father. And because of Jesus, if you've believed in him, you pass with flying colors. This frees us to boldly and radically follow Jesus wherever he leads us. We become bold confessors of sin. Like I've watched people who know they're forgiven. They have no problem telling you and confessing their sin and their own brokenness because they know they are no longer defined by it. If you want someone to share freely the depths of their own brokenness, what do they need? A safe place. That's a real thing. They need a place that they know whatever crap they put on the table, that at the end of the day, they're going to get up from the table and get a big old hug because they're loved and accepted. What causes us to put on the mask, what causes us to judge according to outward appearances is our fear of rejection. So we just put up the face. But in Christ, when we're accepted, we no longer have to put on the face and just pretend that everything's okay. When someone asks how it's going, we can say, honestly, not that good today. Kind of sucks right now. We know we need Jesus, so we don't have to pretend we don't. 
And when we're no longer concerned about everybody else's judgment of outward appearances, and we're freed from seeking their approval when we know we're accepted in Christ. And so we don't care. Judge all you want. I don't care. But we also don't get angry at them. We're free to show them mercy because we know their own judgments about outward appearances is because there's brokenness in their own heart. See, here's my heart for, for us as the church. That, that people on the outside would look in and see us radically loving one another the way we've been loved and radically extending mercy, confessing sin and struggling together. When we're wronged, we, we walk in forgiveness and not arrogance. And we show mercy like we've been shown mercy. And when people look in and see that beautiful picture, it's like, I want a piece of that. I want to be a part of that. By this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. And the only thing that's required for entrance into the community of God is to admit that you don't have it all together and believe in the work of Jesus instead of your own. And as that radical mercy and love is extended, radical confession will take place. Sin can be brought to the light so that it can be nailed on the cross and taken care of by the work of Jesus. And this is what I want for New Eden, to be a people that discern and evaluate rightly. We, we can speak truth about sin to each other. We can be honest about it because we're not seeking approval from the world. It's okay if they don't agree with us. We don't expect that. And this doesn't mean that we have a bunch of culture warriors because we know Jesus is king and he's going to take care of it. So he doesn't need us to go around carrying the sword. He's like, Peter, put your sword back, bro. I've got this. Like, I can rise from the dead. I think I'll be okay if so-and-so is elected president next year. We were never called to fight from a position of fear over losing our power and our privileges. When I say, like, stand strong, I mean lovingly holding fast to the confession of your faith without wavering. I mean, trusting and believing in what Jesus says, that it's good and it's true and it's right. It's what we walk through in Jude, earnestly contending for the faith, the faith to believe. And so in all this, while we recognize that we might be hated by the world, if we really are following Jesus, you know what our response is? It's not a martyr complex. It's not crying persecution around every corner. It's walking in humility. Seeing persecution or hatred by the world as, as walking in the sufferings of Christ and then extending mercy and saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But to be able to do that, you can't white knuckle that. That's not an outward appearance mask you can put on. I know as Southern people are really good at putting a smile on, but try loving your enemies. It doesn't work. It only works when you go to the gospel and you realize that you were once his enemy and now you have a seat at his table. That's what changes us. So true and righteous judgment is honest about ourselves and is honest about God and is honest about Jesus. It has eyes to see that we all need the grace of Jesus. And that's good news for me and for a hurting world. That's the witness they need to see. So may we radically love like we've been loved by Christ. May we radically accept others like Christ 
accepted us. And as we follow him on his mission, like I want you to be encouraged, church. If you have accepted and received Christ, stand boldly upon who the Father says you are, upon who the Father judges you, evaluates you to be, which is completely loved and accepted, sons and daughters of the King. And there's not a soul, not even the devil himself, who can bring a different accusation or a judgment on your life. That's good news.